It's September 2020. I was going to record this episode last week. Right when I was preparing to record, I got a phone call from a buddy. I've known him for over 20 years. He lives in an affluent suburban Connecticut neighborhood. Uh, his particular neighborhood is better than the average neighborhood. It's a, uh, it's, it's nice. I remember the first time um, he was thinking about buying it, and we were hanging out. And he's like, hey, man, come go for a ride. Let's go look at this house I'm thinking about buying. And I was like, get the, get out of here. What? He's like, yeah, man. And it's, uh, it's a great house. Beautiful home. Beautiful neighborhood. So he's in the process of looking into getting a second mortgage or refinancing, whatever you adults do with your houses that you own. And he had an appraiser come out. And this particular appraiser, I guess maybe underestimated the knowledge base of my friend and who my friend knows. So this appraiser puts in a number and I, whatever he is, appraiser, value, or whatever it is, undervalues my friend's house. Now, my friend did his research and he knows what the neighbor's uh, houses are going for. Uh, he knows he's educated. So when the guy comes with this number, uh, my friend goes to his friend who's the I guess a lender or something person who's going to be working out the numbers and he's like uh-uh no your house I, I did one in this neighborhood this there's no way this number matches up so what's the difference between this guy my friend and uh the other people in the neighborhood well my friend happens to be the only person of Latin descent <laughs> in the neighborhood um but that's a thing that happens turns out now that my friend's friend is now you know, has been collecting instances of this particular appraiser, and he's about to take him to task. Somebody might be facing an early retirement. But why would you do that? Why would you undervalue a person's home just because you can? So in between that call, I wound up not recording. I was, well, you don't know, but I wound up not recording. During the course of the week, I see another story that comes up. Turns out, an activist group, this is out of Newsweek, Newsweek, an activist group declares the Texas city, San Antonio, to be a sundown town, and black residents and visitors should reconsider travel there. Wow, San Antonio, Texas. This is not dated from 1990 or 19 or 2015. No, it's dated September 2020. They released a press release. It says a travel advisory has been issued to warn that any black people in or traveling to San Antonio use increased caution when visiting the city due to the city's policing policies that put black lives in danger. The release then goes on to cite two instances of racism and anti-blackness displayed by the San Antonio Police Department and the Bexar County Sheriff's Office. A combat veteran named Damian Daniels was murdered by a Bexar County Sheriff's deputy during a wellness check. Another black man, Matthias Ometu, was harassed and arrested by the San Antonio Police Department for jogging. He made it out... Oh, wait a second. Let me continue the story before I say. Ometu spent two days in Bexar County Jail even after it was confirmed he was not a suspect the police were searching for. So I do suppose it's fair to say he made it out lucky because he got out of jail um, and he didn't wind up like Ahmaud Arbery, the black man who was murdered. 
you know, I think I know of this story, actually. It's funny I'm reading this because I know of another story, and it'd be crazy. You know what? I'm going to pause just so I can find out if this is the same exact story. Wow. 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 This is the same story. I'd heard of this story. That, you know, when you're black, you kind of, you don't really keep up with the stories because you can't. There's so many. But this is one that stuck with me recently, and it turns out, same story. Let me get into a little bit more detail. This is the Texas man was forcefully arrested by law enforcement for jogging while black as they searched for a different man believed to be involved in a nearby domestic violence incident. Matthias Ometu, 33 years of age, spent two days in the Bexar County Jail after he was arrested by two San Antonio Police Department officers. The department has since acknowledged that Ometu was not the suspect they were looking for, and the victim corroborated the fact, but he was still charged and taken into custody. Cell phone footage, gotta love these cell phone footage, shows two San Antonio Police Department officers roughly shoving Ometu in the back of a police cruiser while he screams, you're choking me, several times. The officers, including one black man, listen, sidebar, black cops are still cops, doesn't mean shit. The officers, including one black man, I was arrested one time, by the way, it was by a black man. Anyway, the officers, including one black man, wrestle a handcuffed Ometu headfirst into the back seat and begin pushing him by his feet. Mm. They wound up keeping him locked up for two days. Mm. The wrong guy. And then they had the balls. Oh, this is more of the story. Ah, this isn't the article. This is just from memory. More of the story. The officers wound up because all the George, the protesting and everything's going on. They said, we're not going to charge him for resisting arrest. Like they said, we're going to be high minded about this. Ooh, Matthias Ometu. I hope you sue them. And that's light work. Black people. Let's up this strategy. Let's get this Omar little situation going huh let's take a you know all these people have these people that want to you know do things one thing that's lacking in the strategy is giving them the fear that they have for us i mean we're heading towards this anyway right so let's just do it smart let's find out where they live let's find out who their families are and then when the next time something happens instead of randomly burning down a random coffee house in your neighborhood we'll know where to go we saw what happened when, um, who was it, the Jacob Blake? Was that the one where, uh, like, 60 officers surrounded the house? They can't surround all their houses, man. And I'm not saying anything that the president himself isn't saying. He's telling them to rough them up. He's telling them he's the law and order guy. He's saying do all this stuff. He is openly provoking an already ongoing war against the, imp the incremental genocide of black people by the hands of police, sanctioned by the president. And it's not just police. You got this little Kyle Rittenhouse. You got average citizens taking up arms. So, I say that to say, this episode's about housing. No matter what you do, I don't know how you're looking at the world, but as far as I'm concerned, the only way to be looking at this it's white nationalists versus everybody. I gotta tell you, man, 
White nationalists are out of control. I personally believe they're death merchants because all they are are bringers of death. Look at their their platforms and positions. War, death, denying health care leads to death, denying COVID, not wearing masks, uh, obscuring uh, facts and information. What's it going to lead to? Death. We're looking at a quarter of a million people. Death. The planet, they're destroying it. That's death to the planet. Everything the right wing does leads to death. The culture of guns? Death. Oh, wait, they're pro-life. So what happens when that fetus makes it out of the womb? What are they dealing with? The world of death that these, air quotes, pro-life people are all about. They're liars, they're hypocrites, they're bringers of death. They're death merchants, they're oppression fetishists. They should not be considered a valid point of view as long as you want a world where anything good has the potential of happening. Anything good. Healthcare, decent education, childcare, social security. Why do they want to take away social security? Maybe we'll cover that at another time. But for today, housing. Going to be covering uh, from the first story about my friend and his house. We're going to cover redlining. Okay, I'm going to explain what that is. Uh, and then we're going to talk about sundown towns, which is the San Antonio bit. Things that are hypothetically, and people would say, are things from the past. They are not. They are very much still happening, just like racism. Now, with housing, I'm not going to be getting into the ghettos, like inner city ghettos, you know, because as I started looking at that, it's kind of its own thing. Like, that is an entire episode unto itself. So we're just going to focus on sundown towns and redlining. So, for sundown towns, you may have seen on HBO's Lovecraft Country, the first episode, there's a depiction of a sundown town. So what is a sundown town? Don't let the sun go down on you. Sundown towns, also known as sunset towns, gray towns, sundowner towns, they're all white municipalities or neighborhoods in the United States that practice a form of racial segregation by excluding non-whites via some combination of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, and violence. Entire sundown counties and sundown suburbs are also created by the same process. The term came from signs post that colored people had to leave town by sundown. The practice was not restricted to the southern states, as at least until the early 1960s, northern states could be nearly as inhospitable to black travelers as states like Alabama or Georgia. Let's go ahead and change that. That comes from Wikipedia, but we're going to change that because uh, bring it right into 2020. Now, like I say, Lovecraft Country on HBO shares a fan a depiction of a sundown town where, because there's like sci-fi fantasy elements to that show, in their sundown town depiction, when the sun comes down, the black people have to be afraid of the white people, but also when the sun goes down, there's these nocturnal murder monsters that come out of the woods and so there's not only the danger from the white people in the sundown town there's also these flesh-eating monsters so it's an interesting show worth a look okay but sundown towns um from wikipedia 
I got to tell you, African-Americans were not the only minority group. Not I hate that term minority for African-Americans, but I said it and it's there. So black people weren't the only group not allowed to live in white towns. One example is that in 1870, Chinese people made up one third of Idaho's population following a wave of violence. Let's guess who did that? White nationalists. And in 1886, anti-Chinese convention in Boise, almost none remained by 1910. In another example, the town of Gardnerville, Nevada, is said to have blown a whistle at 6 p.m. daily, alerting Native Americans to leave by sundown. Can you imagine the stones of white nationalists to eliminate Native Americans, indigenous people, tribes people, from the land they owned and occupied because a whistle blows or they're going to kill you. Got to tell you, in Colorado, there were signs that said things like no Mexicans after night in Connecticut, Connecticut, whites only within city limits after dark. Hmm. Jews. Hey, Jews. Jews were also excluded from living in some sundown towns such as Darien, Connecticut, and Lake Forest, Illinois, which kept anti-Jewish and anti-black housing covenants until 1990. Now, people will look at that and say, that's last century. San Antonio, 2020. Okay, if you don't like my voice, I apologize, but get your kicks on Route 66. Now... That was a big deal. Americans driving across the country would hop on Route 66 and make their way and see the see the golden, like the amber waves of grain and all that sea to signing sea nonsense, right? Well, you know what else went from sea to signing sea? Racism. Yeah, that's right. But let me tell you, there was a message that went out to all Americans that was really only meant for white Americans. One year before construction on Route 66 began, the Chicago Tribune suggested in an editorial on August 29, 1925, that black people avoid recreational sites altogether. Here's the quote. We should be doing no service to the Negroes if we did not point out that to a very large section of the white population, the presence of a Negro, however well behaved, among white bathers is an irritation. This may be a regrettable fact to the Negroes, but it is nevertheless a fact and must be reckoned with. The Negroes could make a definite contribution to, to a good race relationship by remaining away from beaches where their presence is resented. End quote. That's normal. I suppose that's what they mean when they say make America great again. I'm just presuming. Don't think I'm wrong. Not only were black people shut out of pools and beaches, blacks also couldn't eat, sleep, or even get gas at most white-owned businesses. To avoid the humiliation of being turned away, they often traveled with portable toilets, bedding, gas cans, and ice coolers. Even Coca-Cola machines had white customers only printed on them. In 1930, 44 out of the 89 counties that lined Route 66 were all white communities known as sundown towns. 
places that openly banned blacks from entering city limits after dark with posted signs that read, quote, nigger, don't let the sun set on you here, end quote. Also on Route 66, featured every mile was a minefield. <laughs> Businesses with three Ks in the title, such as Cozy Cottage Camp or Clean Country Cottages, were code for the Ku Klux Klan and only served whites. You know what black people did? Because we're resourceful, that led to travel guides. You've seen the movie, maybe, or at least heard of it, Green Book, where somehow a movie about black traveler guides was focused on a white guy. But I understand that movie was made for white people to understand an experience, so okay, yada, yada. But the point of the Green Book was to identify safe places for black travelers because white nationalists were so horrible. If you would like to investigate a little further on Sundown Towns by State, there is a website I can refer to you. It's sundown.tougaloo.edu. Okay? Sundown.tougaloo.edu. That is a partial but interesting look at a map of Sundown Towns by State. So, if you are all interested in seeing a physical manifestation of racism, voila. So let's talk about the other way that racism and white nationalists screw up housing for people of color. Redlining. What is redlining? Redlining refers to a discriminatory pattern of disinvestment and obstructive lending practices that act as an impediment to home ownership among African Americans and other people of color. Banks used the concept to deny loans to homeowners and would-be homeowners who lived in these neighborhoods. This in turn resulted in neighborhood economic decline and the withholding of services or their provision at an exceptionally high cost. Making home ownership and getting loans for homes difficult for black people vastly reduced the amount of capital in the black community. When you don't have things, you can't pass things on. You get it? Like, you get a house with the exception that you're paying into something that you're going to be getting back for yourself. If you can't even get something... I mean, you try to build towns and they murder people and burn it down. You try to buy a house, they won't even give you a loan to get it. It's insane. Insane. So what does the actual word redlining mean, right? Okay. The term redlining is a nod to how lenders identified and referenced neighborhoods with a greater share of people deemed more likely to default on a mortgage. Using red ink, lenders outlined on paper maps the parts of a city that were considered a high risk of default, as well as more desirable neighborhoods for approving a loan. Riskier neighborhoods were predominantly black and Latino. Physical copies of such maps are stored in the National Archives. Again, evidence of white nationalism. The University of Richmond has digital versions 
of about 200 maps once used for redlining. Ever justifying their horrible, horrible behavior, the federal government at the time called this best practices for responsible lending. Well, you see, we can't go giving poor people lending. Fast forward to the housing crisis. Ha ha ha. Funny how times change. If you'd like to visit a site that has some of the maps of redlining, there's a site called urbandisplacement.org that has a few maps. Or, like I said, you can go find the National Archives where you can see um, 200 maps used for redlining. Now, the color of law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America by Richard Rothstein, a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute, aims to flip the assumption that the state of racial organization in American cities is simply a result of individual prejudices. He untangles a century's worth of policies that built the segregated American city of today. From the first segregated public housing projects of President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal to the 1949 Housing Act that encouraged white movement to the suburbs to unconstitutional racial zoning ordinances enacted by city governments, Rothstein substantiates the argument that the current state of the American city is the direct result of unconstitutional state-sanctioned racial discrimination. Again, if you'd like to look, that book, The Color of Law, a Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It's either a paper or a book, but that's the title of it. In an interview with Rothstein, the question is posed, why do you think there is this national amnesia about the history of these policies? He responds, when we desegregated the buses, people could sit anywhere on the bus they wanted. When we desegregated restaurants, people could sit anywhere in the restaurant that they wanted. Even when we desegregated schools, if the ruling was enforced, the next day children could go to the school in their neighborhood. But residential segregation is a much more difficult thing to do. If we prohibit the effects of residential segregation, it's not as though the next day people can up and move to the suburbs that once excluded them by federal policy. So given how difficult it is and how disruptive it would be to the existing residential patterns in this country, people avoid thinking about it rather than having to confront something that's very difficult. And once people start to avoid thinking about it, then fewer and fewer people, as time goes on, remember the history at all. Which is why this podcast, for an audience of four to six people, exists. In another book, Arnold Hirsch's Making the Second Ghetto, Race and Housing in Chicago, in 1946, white mobs attacked temporary veterans' housing located in Chicago's West Lawn and West Edelson neighborhoods. From August 13, 1947 to August 16, 1947, between 500 and 5,000 angry white people rioted and attacked black veterans and their families moving into the Fernwood neighborhood of Chicago. 
Historians estimate that 10,000 people rioted when white homeowners thought that black union workers attending a meeting in the Englewood area of the city were looking to buy a house. Another example, on the night of July 11, 1951, Harvey E. Clark, a black World War II veteran and Fisk University graduate, moved into an apartment in the Chicago suburb of Cicero, Illinois. Police officers were waiting for his moving van and put a gun to his landlord's back. Twenty more officers dragged Clark into an alley and beat him to a bloody pulp. The Cicero race riot of 1951 occurred July 11th through the 12th when a mob of 4,000 whites attacked an apartment building that housed a single black family in the neighborhood of Cicero, Illinois. So what happened was, in the aftermath of World War II, there was a revival of white attacks on blacks, mostly on Chicago's south and southwest sides, but also in the western industrial suburb of Cicero. Aspiring African-American professionals seeking to obtain approved housing beyond the increasingly overcrowded Southside ghetto, whether in private residences or in the new public housing developments constructed by the Chicago Housing Authority, were frequently greeted by attempted arsons, bombings, and angry white mobs, often numbering in the thousands. Good God. The things white nationalists do to you. I don't know. So, housing intimidation, redlining, sundown towns, and then you have, you know, the new, the, the new hotness, gentrification. Now, for some reason, during the 40s and 50s, when there would be a collective black neighborhood, you know, black people would wind up move to an area and then they would have what would be you know, now referred to as historical black neighborhoods, formerly, because a lot of them had freeways, you know, they were bulldozed to make room for freeways. They were bulldozed to make ways for stadiums. They were bulldozed with the intention of making, you know, nicer housing, but ultimately what wound up happening, even though they made the promise to the people who lost their homes, they didn't get, the people that were moved out didn't get to live in the nicer homes. They moved those black people out and other people of color out to move white people in. An example, I, my mom had some friends in West Palm Beach, Florida. They lived right, you know, kind of near the water. And she drove us through this neighborhood that was had some nice high rises on the water. She went on to explain that the neighborhood used to be predominantly black and there was a popular beach that people could go to, but eminent domain took all those people's homes, made the beaches private, and now it's very nice to drive through to see all the shrubbery and the fences and behind it are high rises, which on the other side of it have beaches, but a lot of people were displaced to make room for these expensive high rises and private beaches. That's some arrogant stuff is private beaches, man. Ah, whatever. Anyway, gentrification. You know what gentrification is. It's the transformation of a city neighborhood from low value to high value. Gentrification is also viewed as a process of urban development in which a neighborhood or portion of a city develops rapidly in a short period of time often as a result of urban renewal programs. 
magically, schools get better, garbage is picked up. Hmm. I remember the first time I saw the Old Navy on 125th Street in Harlem. I, I was... It hurt. <laughs> it hurt. And then Rosenberg on Hot 97. That's gentrification like a mug. But anyway, that's what's up, man. Gentrification, just displacement, displacement, sundown towns, redlining, all forms of racial discrimination as it relates to housing. These are things that happen. Of course, I couldn't cover everything. Feel free to find a book or Google search. But all this stuff is real. And all this stuff, courtesy of white nationalists. So, that's what's up. This is the housing episode. And this podcast is still white nationalists versus everybody.